0: Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. If you have been with us at all this year, you know that our theme for 2023 is why does it matter? And we are spending this entire year trying to answer that very profound question. Why does anything matter? That's how we started the year in the winter season. And each season of our liturgical year, we're going to explore a different facet of that question right now for Easter. We're looking at your story and asking the question: Why does your story matter? And you know that we're reading through the Gospel of John to guide us in our time together. And what we're hoping you will be doing as you read through, explore, study, deepen your understanding of John's Gospel is that you will see yourself. In some of these stories. And N.T. Wright challenges believers to read the Gospel of John that way. So, we've looked at some stories already. Hopefully, some ways that you could already feel like you're a part of the story, so to speak. Remember, we've looked at the, the woman uh, or the family that was desperate at a wedding. Remember that one in John 2? You know, I've done a lot of weddings and I've seen a lot of desperate people. I've been desperate a couple times in weddings. Let <clears throat> I me mean, just give you this piece of advice if you're yet to get married. Don't let the ring bearer carry the rings. I mean, for real. Just don't do it. <sighs> um, you know, a lot of times when they do that, they like to tie that little bow, you know, and put the rings in there. But the problem is, anytime you're trying to undo a knot in public, all it does is mess up and just force the knot even more. Speaking from experience and... Uh, Last time it happened to me, good news is the best man had a pocket knife, and we just took and just cut all those strings out and got the thing. So uh, let me have the rings if, if you're questioning it, okay? But you know, the desperation we talked about goes beyond weddings. Just what's it like to feel desperate? We talked about that. Also, we looked at the story of Nicodemus, the story of the woman at the well, and I hope that we're all paying attention because one of the things that John wants you to know is that both Nicodemus and the woman at the well need to be redeemed from their pasts. You see, the woman at the well was pretty obvious for her. But Nicodemus was this accomplished religious authority. As one scholar has put it, when it comes to religion, people who think they see the most clearly, more often than not, have incredible blind spots. Nicodemus would qualify. He had a certain understanding of who he thought the Messiah was going to be. And so he needed to be redeemed from his past, just like the woman at the well. Well, today, we're going to look at another story that I hope you can write yourself into the script a little bit. And it's a very famous passage out of the life of Jesus. It's found on the fifth page of John's Gospel. So if you've got your copy of the New Testament, let's look at John 5. We'll gather today under this heading, the great physician, as we look at this very familiar story. And let's... Look at it together. It's our custom to stand in honor of the Lord Jesus whenever we read the gospel. So if you're able, I invite you to stand. Remember, Jesus has, in John 4, he has left Jerusalem, southern part of Israel. He's gone to Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And now we come to John 5, and he's come back south to Jerusalem. So John says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. No matter where you are, In Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. It's the holy city, it's on a mountain, if you go on a hill, so you always go up. Verse two, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, means the house of outpouring. It's surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there uh, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, is It's is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Now that's an interesting question. They didn't ask him who healed you. You've been unendly for 38 years. How'd this happen? What they said was, well, who authorized you to carry your mat? Don't you know what day it is? verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, before we get to the healing, which we're going to get to, I want to make sure that we're paying attention to what John is doing here in this gospel. Because John is painting a portrait of Jesus in the gospel of John. And I don't want us to miss the hues, if you will, the contours, the textures of this portrait that John is painting. So here's the context. Many scholars agree with this. That Jesus, he was accused of many things by the Jewish leaders of his day. Everybody knows that. But here's what we think about John. John is painting a portrait of the Messiah on trial throughout his gospel. In other words, you don't have to wait until Jesus is before Pilate. That's that's not what you need to do when you're reading this gospel. Jesus is on trial all the way through. And John is going to use language and imagery to help us all understand that. So so what what I want us to do, if you still have your, your Bible open, I want you to look at it with me. We're going to look at several texts in John Look at verse 16. We didn't read this. We stopped at verse 15. This story goes all the way through the end of chapter 5. Okay. So look at verse 16. It says the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now that word is translated persecute. It's an interesting Greek word. It can mean persecute. But it also has the connotation of legal prosecution. And so John is saying that these Pharisees, Jewish leaders... They actually began to prosecute Jesus. In other words, they're building a case, a legal case. So John is letting you know the Messiah is already on trial. Now that doesn't surprise us because in the very beginning of this gospel, we learned something about Jesus and something about the culture in which he lived. He was already on trial just because of where he was from. Do you remember when Jesus was introduced early on in John 1 and Someone said, hey, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember what the response was? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You see, Nazareth was in the northern part of Israel. And it was adjacent to a pretty significant Gentile population. So anybody from Nazareth was going to have all kinds of connections with Gentiles. Um business connections, personal connections. As a matter of fact, the Jews in the south in Judea, the Jews in the north were Galileans. They were around the Sea of Galilee. The Jews in the south could actually even detect it in their dialect. They could hear someone from Nazareth talk, and they knew. Remember when Peter was warming his hands around the fire that night when he denied that he knew Jesus? You remember that story? And one of the the ladies said, yeah, you're one of his. You're you're from Galilee because remember we can hear your accent. We, we know you're not from here. Now y'all are familiar with that in Texas, right? You know, um, I mean, I, I know I grew up. I was born and reared in Alabama, but I've been with y'all so long. I've I've lost my Alabama accent for the most part. Well, I I can call it to mind if I need it, actually. But but you can actually hear it. You, you can tell that this person's from somewhere else. Well. The Jews looked at the Nazarenes and said, well, no prophet's going to come from Nazareth because he would be tainted by the Gentiles. He he won't sound like us. He won't be authentically Jewish. He won't be pure Aramaic. He won't be living here in Jerusalem. So that's the first thing we notice. But now it's going to get even more direct. And so let me just walk you through the prosecution's evidence. Can we do that real quick? Let's just look at it. First of all, look at chapter 5. Verse 16, he's a Sabbath breaker. Look at verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, see, the Sabbath was the day to keep holy according to the Jews. And you look at the Old Testament, there are some specific restrictions about the Sabbath. But by the time of Jesus, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they had actually developed 39 categories of things you can't do on the Sabbath. One of them was carrying a mat. Unless you were, if you were a professional mat carrier, then you were supposed to carry that mat all during the week, but not on the Sabbath. So they're asking this guy this question, what are you doing carrying this mat on the Sabbath? So Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. And he, he also later in chapter nine, he's gonna heal a blind man on the Sabbath. Not only that, I want you to look at verse 18. They call him a blasphemer. He says, not only... Is he breaking the Sabbath? But he's even calling God his own father and he's making himself equal with God. So he is a Sabbath breaker, he's a blasphemer. Now look at chapter seven, if you just keep flipping through John here. Verse 12 of chapter seven says, among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man, others said no. He's a deceiver, he's deceiving the people. So he's also a deceiver. Look at chapter 7, verse 20. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. So he's also possessed by a demon. Then look at chapter 8. Jesus is in this conversation with them about Abraham. And look at verse 41. They said, Jesus said, you're doing the works of your own father. Well, we're not illegitimate children, they protested. Now, In other words, there was something circulating about Jesus and the circumstances surrounding his birth. And so they kind of lay this insinuation, well, at least least we know who our father is. You know, you you seem to be confused about yours. Then if you look at chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews said, aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? So he's a demon-possessed Samaritan. Chapter 9, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? So he's also a sinner. Chapter 10, are y'all still with me? Okay, chapter 10, verse 20, many of them said, he's demon-possessed and he's crazy. He's raving mad. So he's, he's all of these things. You get to chapter 18, verse 30. He's on trial in front of Pilate. And Pilate says, I don't know what to do with this guy. And the leaders of Israel say, do you think we would give him to you if he weren't a criminal? So he's a criminal. Then you come to chapter 19, verse 12, and they say, he actually thinks he's a king. He's a pretender. So the prosecution has laid out their evidence in the gospel of John. Okay, so let's go back to chapter five. All these things about Jesus because the Messiah is on trial in John's gospel. Now, if you go back chapter five, when this first starts to unfold and they're going to prosecute Jesus, how does Jesus defend himself? Well, let me remind you what Jesus does sometimes in John's gospel. Remember, we've talked about this already. He throws down with the double amens. That's Jesus' way of throwing down. When he gives you the double amen, amen, which means this is true, this is true. Now, the old King James gives you a hint to let you know this the double amen. What does it say? Verily, verily. The NIV does it a little differently. It says, very truly. So, look at verse 19. What does Jesus say? He says, very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. In other words, Jesus says, amen, And amen, look at verse 24. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you. There it is again, amen, amen. Look at verse 25. Very truly, I tell you, amen, amen. Jesus is defending himself and he begins with the double amens. Now, Gary Burrs, who's written a commentary, he's a professor at Wheaton on the Gospel of John. He says, here's what Jesus does, starting in verse 19. He launches a defense, he defends himself, and then he calls the witnesses for the defense. It's like a trial. Because in the Jewish world, you had to have at least two witnesses in your defense or in your accusation. So Jesus is going to do that. Verses 19 through 30, Jesus defends himself. And he says some incredible things about himself. He says, I'm doing what my father does. He says, God works on the Sabbath. He said, have you ever noticed, basically the universe still works on the Sabbath? You ever notice that? God's actually working on the Sabbath. I'm doing what the Father does. If I see him do something, I join him. In other words, I have authority over the Sabbath. And then he says, God's the one who gives life. Guess what I do? I give life. So he basically is claiming to be divine when he makes these statements. He talks about eternal life. He talks about preaching this message and how the dead are even going to hear it. There's going to be a great resurrection. Even the ones who are in the graves, he says. Then he says, look at verse 30. He says, and there's going to come a day when I'm going to judge all of this. So Jesus defends himself first. Then he calls forth his witnesses, verse 31. He starts with God. My testimony about the Father is true. Verse 33, then he calls John the Baptist to the witness stand. You've all gone and asked John the Baptist about me. Well, John the Baptist is testifying about me. Then Jesus gives the testimony of his own works. If you look at verse 36, he says, my testimony, my work, my life, my ministry is even weightier than John's was. And then he uses Scripture. He lets Scripture speak on the witness stand. Verse 39, you're studying the Scriptures. Good. They point to me. And then he calls, he plays the trump card in any witness, any trial in Israel. He calls Moses to the stand. Now, you can't trump Moses for the Jews, particularly the Pharisees. And so, look at verse 45. He says, do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses. Because Moses actually understood the era of the Messiah and he gives witness to this. So Jesus basically defends himself in this trial, if you will, and marshals forth the evidence and he turns the table. And now, from Jesus' perspective, the Pharisees are on trial. And let's see how they fare in the rest of this gospel. Now, I would say this to y'all from where I sit, I would tell you that Jesus is still on trial today because people like to make judgments about Jesus. And they have all kinds of views about Jesus. Um, everybody wants Jesus. that They want him on their team. that They want to be able to claim that he is involved in their cause. That's just how it is. Jesus is controversial. You know, people talk about God all the time. God bless you. God be with you. What about Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Well, so many people want Jesus. They want Jesus to be on their side. It reminds me of that story when Abraham Lincoln, supposedly one of his generals came to him and said, aren't you grateful we have God on our side? And Abraham Lincoln said, I'm not interested in, in having God on my side. I want to be on God's side. Well, so many people want Jesus on their side. They want to, They want to claim bits and pieces of Jesus to somehow justify what they do. And if you do that, if you're not careful, you begin to craft Jesus in your own image. I can remember when I was in seminary and we were studying the history of theology in the 18th, 19th, early 20th centuries. One of the things that happened in the liberal side of the theological world, there was what was called the quest for the historical Jesus And When you study the history of that movement, it was a very left-leaning movement taking bits and pieces of Jesus and crafting him in their own image. As a matter of fact, when that movement came to an end, a conservative scholar said, this is how it looks to me. You guys have searched and searched and searched, and you've looked down this deep well, and all you now see is a reflection of your own image, and you think Jesus looks like you. Now, I'm just here to tell y'all, your goal in life is not for Jesus to look like you. Your goal in life is for you to look like Jesus. And that's something very different. But everybody wants him. It's fascinating to me. Um, In our day, I just think everybody wants Jesus. What would Jesus do? My question is: what did he do? Before I'm gonna answer the question, what would Jesus do? I'm gonna have to deal with what he did do. So that's where you start. Let me, let me remind you what C.S. Lewis said about some of this. Years ago, C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, end quote. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But come, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. (laughs) I love that. Jesus was not just a teacher. He's not just a, a prophet, as some say. Here's what I would tell you you've only got this option. Either you believe that he's the incarnate son of God, Messiah, Lord, King, and absolute authority, or not. Those are the only two options when it comes to Jesus. Now, back in Alabama, they'd have said amen to that right there. Wouldn't they, honey? that, that, That right there deserves a double amen, in my opinion. That's a verily, verily, because that's really all you have. Now, with that said, before we get to this particular healing, let me just talk to you briefly about human suffering in general. Because this is a a challenging topic for Christians, theologically, philosophically. What about human suffering in our world? Well, here's what I would say about it in general: it's a sign of the brokenness of creation, it's a reminder of the curse. When you look at the world and you say, well, why is there all this suffering in the world? Why is there so much pain? Why, Why is there so much disease? Well, I want you to notice, when Jesus was on the earth, he encountered human suffering all the time. People who were blind, deaf, mute, lepers, the woman with the hemorrhage, the lame, the paralyzed, people that had died, each one of them was a reminder to Jesus of the brokenness of our world. It was a reminder that the world is not well. And occasionally, Jesus would break through that brokenness, wouldn't he? and he would give a temporary healing. But we all know that eventually, even those who were healed, whatever disease he healed them from, eventually would find their way to death. True? It was a temporary breakthrough. It was a glimpse of the kingdom of God being established on this earth, the greater fulfillment which is to come. Well, I would tell you today, we encounter that same world. Look around you today, and you know what you'll see? You'll see disease. Innocent people, nothing of their own doing. They didn't cause anything. They simply been diagnosed with fill in the blank. Cancer, some other incurable disease, whatever it might be. We've just been through a pandemic. Millions of people have died from a physical disaster. And so... We know that that kind of reality is still our reality, but would you not agree with me? There's even a greater circle of pain. There's not just physical suffering in our world, right? There's emotional suffering. There are people who are emotionally, emotionally, psychologically ill. There are people who are relationally ill. Brokenness in their relationships. It's painful. There are people who are spiritually broken. So, would you not agree with me that human suffering is on just about every level? True? Pick an arena and you can find evidence of the brokenness of our world. And that's the world we live in. And as Christians, we have to come to grips with that because people do ask us, Well, you've got this loving God. Why, Why all of this? Well, is, is this what you think God wanted? Is this what you think God had in mind? Is this, what, is this how God wanted it all to turn out? No. The general state of affairs in this world, the brokenness of this world, is directly related to the overall general sinfulness of humanity that has led to the judgment of God, the curse that's been placed, and is powerful. With all of that said... This morning, I want to tell you, I've got really good news. When Jesus was on this earth, the Bible tells us that he went about from place to place, healing the sick, curing diseased, cleansing the lepers, and yes, even occasionally, raising the dead. And so I will give you this testimony this morning. Regardless of how it looks to you, Jesus Christ is the great physician. Praise his name. Let's look back at this story real quick. Can we do it? Real quick, John 5. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. We don't know when. One of the festivals, John puts him in in Jerusalem many times. And he comes to this place and uh, he's at the Pool of Bethesda, it's called. Bethesda means the house of the outpouring. Um, We have found the Pool of Bethesda. It's actually two pools it was surrounded by these colonnades two on either end one in the middle and today you can go visit it in Jerusalem i've been there some of you've been there it's um it's adjacent to just right by the the church of saint annes on the crusader churches and uh, in antiquity it was associated with healing we don't know a whole lot about it but that's what people believed about the pool of bethesda it's associated with healing Somewhat of an apocryphal story, maybe, but one of our presidents was visiting Jerusalem for the first time, and they took him to the Pool of Bethesda, and he said, Oh, we actually have a hospital in America named Bethesda. Well, that's where it came from. Uh, you know, our presidents are not our theologians in residence. We know that, right? Um, so, the Pool of Bethesda, here's what's interesting about it, y'all. We don't know everything, but if you look at verse three, it says, a great number of people who were disabled used to just lie here. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And then you have a little footnote in the NIV. That's because it's not in the best manuscripts of John, but it seems to be connected to a legend. And here's the legend about the Pool of Bethesda, that occasionally an angel would come and stir the waters. And when you saw that dynamic in the water, the first one in the pool got healed. That was the, that was the belief Okay. Now the Pool of Bethesda, the ancient Pool of Bethesda was fed by a natural spring. And so occasionally those waters would be stirred. Some people believe that it had healing powers. Healing powers are associated with water in antiquity. You can find it almost anywhere in the world. It was just that belief. Okay. And there was the idea that this one was somehow connected to healing. So Jesus comes there and he finds a man, look at verse 4, verse 5. This guy has been an invalid for 38 years. Just think about that. This is 2023. Where were you in 1985? Think about it. I dare say those of you that were alive in 1985, a lot has happened in your life since 1985. Would you agree? It had been that long since this guy had walked. So think about that. This guy hadn't walked since 1985. Okay? So Jesus finds out about it. Here he is. And so Jesus has a conversation with him. I want you to notice what he says. Verse 6, he asks him a very interesting question. Do you want to get well? Now, what kind of question is that? You know what the answer to that is? Duh. Why do you think I'm brought down here to the pool of Bethesda every day? Do I want to get well? What kind of question is that? I'm here at the healing water. Now, this guy has no idea who Jesus is. He says, do I want to get well? He says, look. Yeah, I come here. He As a matter of fact, he says, here's the dick. You don't know? Nobody ever told you? Don't you know that an angel comes here and stirs his water? And, and, and somebody's got to get you in the pool? Now, you know, in the pool of Bethesda, there's no shallow end. It ain't like your pool at home. It's all deep. So the last thing you want is a bunch of paralyzed people thrown into pools, right? That's, that's not what needs to happen. You got to have some people there trying to figure this out and decide what to do. Can you put these people in the water? Who's going to be in with them? I mean, it was a, it was a little bit of a melee any time the waters would be stirred. So this guy says, I just, I just want anybody to help me. And I love what Jesus does, y'all. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what. Just get up, get your mat and go. Don't, don't go jump into water. Don't, don't, don't wait on anybody. As a matter of fact, I want, I want your healing to be so powerful, you're not just going to get up and go. You're going to get up and carry your mat with you. And this guy just jumps up. He hadn't walked in 38 years. And all of a sudden, Jesus heals him. And now he leaves with his mat. What a, what a story. In other words, there's no pool of Bethesda here. This is just the great physician. Turns out when you have the great physician, you don't need the pool of Bethesda. And so Jesus heals him. What a a remarkable story, y'all. then you know the rest of the story. The Pharisees see him and say, hey, what are you doing carrying that mat? And he said, well, you know, the guy that healed me told me I could carry it. Well, who told you you could carry a mat on the Sabbath? Isn't that fascinating? And then I love at the end, the guy's a little dicey, I'll be honest with y'all. We don't know what to do with this when he gets to the temple and and he finds out it's Jesus and he goes and turns Jesus in. So that's a little... Talk about a little bit of an unappreciated, healed person, but that's a whole other sermon. But I love what he does. He goes and tells the people. He doesn't tell them, hey, I found the guy told me to carry my mat. He said, I found the guy healed me, because that was the big deal to him. <laughs> Man had been healed. Jesus, he was the great physician then. He's the great physician now. But you know, the power of Jesus is real. Matthew 11, John the Baptist was in prison and he was listening about the stories of Jesus. And Jesus just didn't seem to be doing what he thought he ought to be doing. So he sent his disciples to him and said, hey, are you, are you the Messiah? John wants to know. Jesus said, go back and tell John. The lame are walking. The deaf can hear. The blind can see. The gospel's being preached to the poor. Go tell him that. Well, John knew those were signs of the Messiah. Power of Jesus was on display. So let me ask y'all this morning, y'all still believe Jesus is a great physician today? Do you? It really doesn't matter what you believe. I'm telling you, He is. (laughs) It really does matter what you believe, though. He is. So here's what I want you to know this morning by way of application. Let me do it real quickly. First of all, He knows about your hurts. If yours is physical, he knows it. If yours is emotional, he knows it. If yours is relational, he knows it. If it's spiritual, he knows it. There's nothing right now in your life that's going to surprise Jesus. He knows. I want to tell you the second thing. He cares. He cares. That's who he is. You remember, Jesus goes to Bethany and Lazarus been dead four days and he goes to the tomb and stands in front of the tomb. You remember that story? What does the Bible say? Jesus did the tomb of Lazarus. I mean, come on, y'all. The easiest memory verse in the Bible. What does it say? Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? I've read so many theological answers to that, well, he hated to have to bring Lazarus back from heaven. That's ridiculous. You know why he cried? He was sad. His friend had died. Everybody was crying. Jesus cried. You know why? Because he cares. He cares. And you know what Jesus knew? Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead. But you know what Jesus also knew? Lazarus would have a second funeral. He knew that. This whole family would be crying again. Just like your family has cried. Jesus cares about you. But let me ask you the same question Jesus answered, asked. Do you want to get well? You see, it's been my experience as a pastor, not everybody wants to get well. As strange as it may sound to you, some people like to be ill. It's odd, isn't it? But some people do. Do you want to get well? Well, I've got good news because Jesus Christ is powerful and his power is real today. I want you to know Jesus is not an idea. Jesus is not some good story. He's not a memory of the distant past. Jesus Christ is alive today, and he's still the great physician. So I want to encourage you, come to him today if you need healing. I don't care what it is. Come to him. Come to him. And here's what we do when we come to him and ask for his healing. We trust his heart, because we know he cares about us. We trust his timing, because you know sometimes Jesus is going to do things in his own time. You know, Madeline Lingle said one time, you have a point of view, I have a point of view, and God has view. That's how it is. So just because Jesus is not on your timetable doesn't mean he's not paying attention. And then third, I would tell you, trust his method because he uses all kinds of methods to bring healing. Trust him. Ask him and trust him. Trust. Trust his heart. Trust his timing. Trust his method because his healing to you It might come through the trained hands of a physician. A gifted surgeon might be the instruments of healing in your life. Praise God, right? It might be the trained counsel of a professional godly counselor. That might be the agent of healing for you. It might just be the compassionate heart of a fellow believer. It might be the truth revealed in the Word of God where you're confronted with the truth but it also might be a powerful personal encounter with Jesus and his healing touch in your life, maybe restores your ability to see in a new way, restores your ability to hear, maybe softens your heart, maybe he absorbs your hurt, maybe he changes you and leaves your circumstances as they are, maybe he changes your circumstances as he changes you, maybe he brings a breakthrough in your life, point is, when you come to Jesus and ask for healing, you have to trust him and believe that he always has the kingdom of God and its best interests in his hands and how you connect to that and how you will be most useful. You know, have y'all been watching The Chosen? I've been watching. I like it. Um, There's a poignant scene in this season three. You know, people, when you study the New Testament, you try to figure out how all these people are, there's, an, there's a disciple who has an interesting name, James the Less. Isn't that a great nickname? Hey, are you James? Uh, well, actually, he, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm James the Less. I mean, he's, what does that imply? He's, uh-huh. What does that even mean? Well, theologians have debated it, New Testament scholars. Some people think it just means he was just younger. It's James the Less. Some people think it means he's not James the brother of John. Some people think it means he was small in stature. Well, Dallas Jenkins, who's producing The Chosen, you know what he's chosen? In The Chosen, y'all like how I did that? (laughs) You know how he represents James Less? He's hired an actor who's a little short who has a physical disability. So he kind of walks with a limp. And there's a poignant scene this year in this series now where Jesus sends the disciples out to heal, and James the less comes to Jesus and says, you're gonna send me out to heal, and yet you haven't healed me? And Jesus looks at him. I'm gonna use my words for the thought of Jesus in this story. It's almost as if Jesus says, James, I've already healed you. I just chose not to do it physically. Now you go with that message. And lead these people to trust me. What what a powerful take on that encounter. You see, healing is complex. I get it. And I don't always understand it. But I know this. I trust the great physician. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to have just a brief time of prayer. Can we do that? So I'm going to ask you all just to bow your heads. I want you to pray with me. And here's where I want you to start. If, If you need healing this morning. Okay, if you need it. Right now, just in the quietness of this moment, I just want you to ask for it. If you need to be healed physically, if you need to be healed spiritually, if you need to be healed emotionally, if you need relational healing, if you need spiritual healing, just ask God for it right now. Ask the great physician to bring healing to you. Some of you right now, you've already thought of somebody else. Well, intercede for them. Somebody you know, somebody you love. They need healing today, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, whatever, holistic healing. Intercede for them. Ask the great physician. Father, you've heard the prayers of your people. As their pastor, I, I come before you on their behalf asking you to grant these requests in accordance with your will. Well, we can't help ourselves. We pray for healing. <laughs> and so, on their behalf, what I do, I ask for healing physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, whatever for the people they brought before you, Lord. Pray for healing for them. We trust you as the great physician. We know you care. We know you can act. And so whatever it is you're going to do, Lord, change relationships, change people, change circumstances, I just ask you to do it in your power, in your time, with your method, according to your grace. And we'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.